Thoth Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Hello, friends and listeners, and welcome to a new episode of the Thos Hermes podcast. Today is Sunday, September 12th, 2021, and this is episode 4 of our season 7. And we are really approaching our 100th episode in very few weeks. Very much looking forward to that. Great to have you here again, and if you are here for the first time, my name is Rudolf, I am your host and speaking to you from the outskirts of Austria's lovely main city or capital, Vienna. Yes, I have to tell you something before those of you who now jump immediately to the to the interview are doing that. Um, wanted to let you know something about our Patreon um, patrons, right? Um, so if you have not yet become patron, um, would be nice if you became one and go to the website thoughtshermes.com and click on Patreon there. And also, and that's why I interrupt you and before you jump to the interview, um, I am going to have the first patron only event at the end of this month on in two weeks today uh, next to a regular episode uh, there will be a, another episode just for patrons and this is going to be a live event the live event at 10 p.m european time that's something like 4 p.m on the u.s east coast and you can calculate from there what will be your time if you are a patron already and i'm gonna have a new idea of show which is called trio where i ask somebody who has already been my guest on this show to co-host an interview with somebody we invite together and the first person i am doing this trio on this on september the 26th will be Greg Kaminsky as my co-host. Well, of course, Greg and I have co-hosted many shows together. It was kind of necessary that he became the first to do that with me. He was also, of course, a guest on this show in episode, well, I don't remember it's, if it was season one or two at very early stage. And uh, we are going to invite together Chuck Dunning. Chuck, who has written a book called Contemplative Masonry, but he is not only a very uh, interesting man in regards to masonry, but also to um, the usage of uh, contemplative work and meditation in general. And we're going to have a very interesting talk, I believe. And and uh, if you're a patron, not only you can attend the live event, which will be on video for the first time, but you can also call in. So uh, you see there's a bunch of new things if you're a patron that you can attend. So, well, those of you who are not, they might be able at a later stage to to listen to the show at least, but uh, at a much later stage and under certain conditions, I'm going to tell you at some point. I'm not quite uh, sure about that myself yet. How are we going to do that? In any case, so 
do become a patron and attend on September 26th, the first trio show here on the Thoughts Hermes podcast with my co-host Greg Kaminsky this time, and it will be Chuck Dunning as our guest. And I can already say you as much that this will be a kind of monthly event every four to five weeks. We'll do such a patron-only event to be attended live and with call-in possibility. And my next co-host in October, late October, will be Carl Abrahamson. Okay, so I wanted to say that right away for the rest, well, I mentioned the website, T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S, thoughthermes.com. You can find all the episodes there and listen to them. And you can also, of course, leave me a message and give me some feedback. I'd appreciate that. I'm really glad that more and more of you choose that option. So go there, info at thoughthermes.com via email or on the website. You have a contact form to write to me. And there's also always the possibility of either Facebook or Twitter but also the voicemail on the website of thoughtservice.com. Um, so it would be nice if I heard your voice from time to time. Great. Um, well, my guest today, of course, I need to talk about that in the first place. My guest today is Bianca Bondi. And Bianca is a very fine artist from South Africa, living in Paris, having lived in Paris for quite a long time. And uh, she's a young artist, really young up and coming. She's going to be quite the name, I believe, in a few years from now. And I'm not the only one to say that. But, well, you're going to say, why a visual artist? Uh, well, exactly. But because her work is very much inspired by the Western esoteric tradition, by magic, she is herself also active in that field. She's going to tell us all about that just in a minute. So um, I'll... You should also listen to my intro into the interview because there's an important thing I have to say you also about the music played today on this show. Well, the music, music, uh, we're going to pass on to the first musical piece now. And the first musical piece is also something very special. It is called Diana Nemorensis. And... If you are a regular of this show, this might call something back into your mind. Do you remember back in season six where I had another very interesting guest here? Um, and that was Julia Turolla, I believe it was in May. And one of our listeners, and he is also an author, and well, I, I won't tell you more about him at the moment, but he got back to me because... The interview that we did with Julia inspired him to write this piece of music, to even contacted her. They got in touch. They collaborated on that piece, Diana Nemorensis. We spoke then back about Italian and Greek witchery, if you remember. And um, well... I think it's great. Not only we have musicians here who send me their music, but they're even inspired by the show to write new music and to get in touch with my guests and, and, and do something new. Great stuff. I really, I'm very happy about it. So the piece is, as I said, called Diana Nemorensis and the project, the musical project is called Nominal Vibes. And you should also go to their YouTube channel. You can re-listen to the piece you're going to hear right now, but also you'll hear regularly their new projects and, um, well, do that. And it will be really great if you also kind of listen to them regularly and when they need it, support them. So 
perfect. Um, we gonna we gonna hear that Diana Nemorensis piece now, and then I'll be back and introduce you to the interview with our guest Bianca Bondi. But for now, Diana Nemorensis. Enjoy. Diana, regina della selva, sangue sulle foglie, zoccoli che battono il terreno nella notte. Tu che sei freccia che colpisci, prede e predatrice. Diana delle profonde oscurità e delle altezze luminose. Riflesso della luna sulle acque. Nascosto nelle profondità. Tu che sei il vuoto che partorisce le stelle, l'infinitamente grande e l'infinitamente piccolo. Diana Trivia, signora dei confini, lama del coltello, soglia del cambiamento. Tu che mi attendi ad ogni
Little Vibes interpreting Diana Nemorensis, a piece that has not only been uh, written by uh, one of our listeners here, but also been inspired by one of the shows, the show back then with Julia Turolla, um, making me and I hope all of you really happy. And now let's turn to our guest here today, to Bianca Bondi. Bianca, as I said, is a visual artist and she is really somebody who you're going to hear about if you're interested in the visual arts in the future. And um, of course, how do you present a visual artist in a podcast, you're going to ask. And you're quite right. It is, of course, a kind of a of a new way doing things. But of course, we talk to her, especially about the fact that she has been very much inspired in her work by spiritualism, by animism, by magic. She is herself active in that field and she's going to tell us a lot about that, starting with a very early experience at a young age when she was a girl, had um, her father die and well, she'll, she'll be very, very open about that and I really thank her about her openness and the lovely talk we could have together. Bianca, she lives in Paris and um, yeah, I'm gonna not, of course, read to you today a text by her because she is not somebody who writes text. I can't read from her book or whatever. So what I suggest is that I explain you briefly what I did here in the interval. And now this is, of course, something that's very special to all of those of you who are listening on YouTube because on YouTube you will be able at the moment where we have the break and listen to the piece of music in the interval to see a video passing by uh, with uh, seven of her works and that'll give you of course also some explanation visually about the things she explains to us about her art and why it is as it is. Um, so if you are on YouTube, if you get a chance, please turn your video screen on at least at the interval Otherwise, you can't see that the rest of YouTube is like always just a still picture. But um, if you don't listen to us on YouTube, but if you're still interested in those pictures and that little movie I made, um, do go on the website. I'll put it there. It's on a special page which you can link to from the front page or from the page regarding this episode where you will find not only the seven images, but also a, a link where you can see just that video. I'll put it separately also on YouTube so you'll have access directly through that. Um, don't miss out on that. I think it's an important part of today's talk to understand the work of our guest, Bianca Bondi. Um, tell you more about the music we play in the interval. In the interval, of course. Now, without much further ado, let's go on and meet in Paris our guest, Bianca Bondi. Here comes the interview. Today on the Thoughts Hermes podcast, I welcome uh, a very special guest. And I just said when we were speaking in the preparation of this interview, the short preparation that I always do, this is a kind of an experiment, uh, this interview, because today I'm going to interview a very fine uh, young visual artist, Bianca Bondi. Hello, Bianca. Good to have you here. Hi, I'm so excited and honored to be on this podcast. 
Well, thank you. Why is it an experiment? Well, for two reasons, for me at least. You, you, you can react to that if you want, Bianca. And um, first of all, of course, on the spoken podcast, on the radio program, so to say, to present a visual artist that is not quite easy because because you speak about something people don't see. Um, well, I'll tell you later on how I tried to go around that a little bit. Uh, and the other the other um, speciality to, of today's interview is, of course, that um, you are not the typical guest on this podcast who has maybe made experiences with the tarot or written a book on the Golden Dawn or whatever, but you have very personal experiences and we'll come to that later on who have which have led you to um to what you do as as a work today what you do as art today and uh, i find this this link very exciting very interesting uh, when i read about you saying that on other interviews and well here you are so Let's dive into it, Bianca. Great. <laughs> did, did, did I did I say that correctly? I mean, just as an intro, was it the way you yeah. see it as well? Yeah. Yes, um, for sure. I'm not a typical guest. And it, for me, it's actually, it's really interesting because I've never had the opportunity to speak with someone about these influences, someone in a more professional context. Of course, I have... Um, many friends, and we'll get into that later, many friends who who practice or who have written books or are involved in some way or another. So we'll speak between us. But when I speak about my art career, I just kind of brush over it because very rarely will people actually understand what I'm talking about. So sure. I just, you know. Yeah. Well, that's different here, of course, because the audience of the Thoughts podcast is, um, I think, very knowledgeable on all those subjects. So we are among ourselves, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> so, Bianca, you, you live in Paris, but you originally you come from the southern tip of Africa. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so actually, um, I was born in South Africa and I grew up there. I left when I was 20. Um, my mother is South African, but my father is Italian. Mm -hmm. So I kind of had a bit of a mixed, a mixed upbringing. Um, and I, I guess this is quite important too, is very much linked on my father's side to the Catholic church and all the rituals around that. And then my mother, um, grew up in a family that was quite eclectic. Her parents were really kind of looking for their faith. So they tested multiple different religions and every time really into it. And then, then it would change. So that made my mom a lot more, um, she kind of had her own, she has her own kind of spirituality where she's very much into, into nature and plants and, and just very much more earthbound. And I think that was, that was really important in my upbringing too. Mm -hmm. to feel that, yeah. would you would you say that would also be a typical background for the country uh, where you grew up or is that would that be exaggerated to say that i think it's a bit exaggerated because south africa is such a diverse and culturally culturally rich country i mean mm -hmm. uh the example i like to give is we have 11 official languages right um, it's not just one or two 11 and um i think being south african you do grow up very much connected to nature outdoors um space is not a problem it's a huge huge country mm -hmm. um so 
just as a kid, like my mom grew up on farms, you know, she'd run around, she'd, you know, I don't know, meditate to the sun. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's a big influence. So maybe in that way, it's connected to the country, to the, the earth. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, in general, I believe uh, whatever we talk about, but that when you have a practice like that, somehow it is connected to the place. I wouldn't say the country or, or, or the mm -hmm. soil, but to the place you are and its history and its surroundings. Uh, did you grow up in an, you personally in an urban surrounding or rather in a, in a, in a suburban or countryside or what was that? Oh, completely urban. Um, the first six years of my life were in a small apartment, uh, in the like close to the CBD. Uh, then we moved to, to a house and, but my grandparents still had this farm. So, um, I was left there with my, my little sister every school holiday and, and, uh, we spent a lot of time there. We grew up there. And, and also, I mean, you go to schools in, in a country like South Africa and they're quite, They're quite British in the sense that you're encouraged to, well, you don't actually have a choice. It's you have your academic curriculum and then you have to do sport. So mm -hmm. you're there the whole day and you're running around and, um, yeah, it's very different to France. Yeah, I'm sure it's completely also mentality wise. I'm sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. But, um, so you grew up, uh, kind of, uh, already already preformed by your parents and um, how did your father and his catholic upbringing react to 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 that uh, to those surroundings did he adapt or did he did he did he kind of give you a counterculture to that or what was it so um my father passed away when i was six mm -hmm. so i mean it's a it's a story that we'll probably get into afterwards but basically it was more his parents side um extremely religious and we would go visit his parents in italy you know it's funny because scientists say psychologists say that as a child you're not you don't usually have memories before the age of six mm -hmm. and um i have so many memories from before And I've always had this thing where I find it important not to talk about them too much because then you have to search for, for language and words to give to these memories and somehow you contaminate them. Mm -hmm. So things are very, very clear in my mind and I've never really, I don't really share them, speak about them. But one thing that I can talk about is um, from, you know, before my father, while my father was there, from him passing, seeing my grandmother, the first thing she would do was take your hands and start saying Dio mio, like praying <laughs> to someone. Mm -hmm. And it, it's quite impressive. And when my father passed away, both my mother and my stepfather, um, that was the final store for them. And they never set foot in a church again. Okay. Um, it was just too unbelievable. My dad was 42. And, uh, well, the story I said, we'd get into, we, we might as well get into it now. Um, mm -hmm. Basically, he, he was someone who, it seems he escaped an arranged marriage. I mean, he came from a small village in Italy. Mm -hmm. Everything was very uh, kind of uh, planned out. <laughs> And yeah. the furthest he could go was South Africa. <laughs> And, you know, <laughs> at the time, <laughs> in the 70s, there was a rumor that there was work, there was gold, life was good. And then you get there. 
and you realize that this is a country living under extreme oppression. There's a lot of problems and um, it's just not what it was set out to be. So my father was someone who was extremely sensitive. He arrived in the country. Um, he worked as an accountant and very quickly he didn't want to be involved in that. And he started working with uh, precious stones and gold and he started his trade as a jeweler. So he would mm -hmm. create and sell. Obviously, um, there's not a lot of money in that when you're starting out, but he loved it. And he would do these fairs and, and just kind of invite um, everyone to, to partake in it. And I'm, I'm rambling a bit, but basically what happened is uh, he was a bit of a, a hippie, we can say. Yeah. <laughs> And I didn't really believe in, in Western medicine. So it was kind of like my mom in that sense, more into healing yourself with plants and everything. So he had um, these headaches for a long time and he didn't see anyone about it. Mm. I personally believe that this was linked to the, the recent death of his own father, which had been a year or two years before. Right. And I mean, there's definitely this connectivity um, I think feeling guilty for kind of running away and then not being able to go back as much as possible and not actually being able to believe that you could lose your father and then you do. So I think that that guilt kind of, it acted up in a molecular way in him. Mm -hmm. And uh, so basically he never did anything about it. And uh, one night there, so it's this community of Italian people and you know how they are. They go and they play cards. They drink too much alcohol. They laugh, um, and they were doing. They were having one of their typical evenings, and my mom said, "Oh, we have to go home. The girls have school tomorrow." And I was starting primary school, so it was quite a big deal. Mm -hmm. And um, his best friend, who lived in the apartment below us, said, "No worries. I'll take I'll take you and the girls back, and Vincenzo and I will come. We'll come back later." And so they, he brings us back and next thing, you know, I have school the next day. It's my first day. I'm so excited. I'm not sleeping. Next thing I hear all this commotion and my father had collapsed actually. And basically he'd gone to the bathroom and just before he'd asked my mom if she, if he could have uh, a painkiller. And she thought this was so strange because he, you know, he never does that. Yeah. And so he collapsed and uh, ambulance, an ambulance came. It was a whole thing. Um, he had to have an emergency operation. But I mean, this happened over the space of a couple of days. And I remember the operation was Friday the 13th. And my mom was extremely superstitious about this. But the doctor said either he doesn't have the operation and he will die, or he has it and there's a very slight chance he makes it, but there's that chance. Mm. So he has the operation. And the next day, Valentine's Day, he passes away. Hmm. And before he has the chance to, he says to his best friend, should anything happen to me, please promise you'll raise my children. So my sister was 10 months old at the time. Um, and uh, it was, yeah, it was pretty unbelievable. No one, I mean, so his best friend, Piero said to him, nothing's going to happen to you. You're 42, you know, and. And then there we go. And so, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing the story. And I, I could imagine that that changed something in you also, didn't it? So this was a defining point for me because 
Something that I've always found strange is I remember my father would play tennis. He was he was very sporty and and every time he had to leave the house for something, I would grab his ankles and I'd say, don't go, don't go. And it was a bit dramatic. And over time, I, I mean, at a pretty young age, I realized I knew that he was leaving. There was something I knew that we had a limited amount of time together. And that's why it was always this big panic. You're going to leave me. Mm-hmm. And so, um, <laughs> it's my train of thought. Um, after, after he passed, I remember becoming quite introverted. It was kind of like this acceptation of, so now it's happened. So now, now what do we do? And then my next memories are we'd moved into this house, um, and there was this garden and we never had, a, we'd never had a garden before and it was really beautiful and it just seemed very, overwhelming for me. So I like to go to the bottom of it and kind of hide. Mm-hmm. And very quickly, I started doing this thing where I would, I would lie very still. And I used to imagine my body separating in two. And now you have to imagine that at this point, I was probably seven or eight years old. So yeah, <laughs> that's just, early. Yeah. It's, so it's a kind of out of body experience that you, that you created or yeah. I, well, that's what I learned only later on. Sure. When I was maybe 11, 12 and I started reading about this. Mm-hmm. So I'd go there and I would make my body separate into layers. And then I would have this whole vision. It was very strange because I would go, it was always a desert. I would go to the desert. I don't know, maybe it was Egypt. <laughs> so I'd go through the sands and it was really like a, a long walk. And then I would see my father, but my father was next to the sun. And okay. we would always talk together in this presence of the sun. And so I would do this often and it kind of became like a comfort thing for me. Um, obviously, I grew up in in the, was the early 90s and born in 86. And at the time, you also had all these series that were dealing with witchcraft, you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah, yeah. That, that, was, that was really traumatic because although my parents had, so I, I call my stepfather my, my father because he was an amazing man and he really, he kept mm-hmm. that promise. Um, so they wanted nothing more to do with the church. But for our grandparents, grandmother in Italy, we, we had to go to <laughs> those uh, yeah. classes. And so every Friday, um, um, it would, I would be doing these biblical studies and they'd end at five and my mom had to straight, fetch me straight away. Otherwise I'd miss Buffy the vampire there. And this was just very traumatic, you know, you harmed and stuff. And I mean, this stuff is funny, but it was really important because it was, it was the first access point that someone who was searching for that kind of faith at a young age mm-hmm. had. Yeah. And then, of course, I would go because we didn't have internet, you know, sure. uh, I'd go to libraries and I'd devour anything I could. I, I very quickly realized that older books, medieval books had had really interesting stuff in them. Mm-hmm. And around the age of 11, I think it was, um, I started my first coven. And oh, really? Yeah, you, your own coven, you mean? Yes. So oh, I encouraged wow. some, some girls at school uh, and we, we started and obviously we had no idea what we were doing. So we knew that uh, there had to be some blood sharing because you had to give libations to the gods. Yeah. So we would spit, we would prick our fingers <laughs> and, you know, this sort of stuff. And 
and yeah, so it all started from those those first uh, out of body. <laughs> you are you are of this generation who learned it from TV in the first place. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's to, you know to pay respects to. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I believe that those things can be very inspiring. I don't I don't laugh at those because if you have the right feeling for it as a receiver, then of course you you make something different than big mass of audience who who will just like it and maybe have have a fun evening with it but if you yeah. have to and um, but how, how carried it on then i mean uh, i gather when you say you you had your first experiences then those experiences carried on later on in your life right yes yeah, so um i mean we were all watching the same shows we were very eager we would take notes uh, we knew that we had to have uh, a grimoire. We had to, you know, we were reading Raymond Buckland. Um, that was huge. Yeah, great. <laughs> and, you know, the funny thing is I actually got my first book. Um, so my, my mother has three sisters and the youngest one passed away under strange circumstances. And I inherited a random eclectic collection of her books and one of them was Raymond Buckland candle magic. And there was no other sign in whatever she possessed to show that she was into magic or anything, but this book was clearly well-read. And so that became something very special to me. And then I, I had his name imprinted in my mind and I had to devour anything I could, I could find. And, and so, um, with this group of, well, we were four girls. This was very important because it was earth air you know okay <laughs> yeah 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 so you did element magic so to speak exactly yeah, the cardinal yeah. points yeah, and, yeah. Um, so we, we we kind of would uh, take notes whatever and and put our our knowledge together and i mean you know how it goes when when you experiment with magic and you don't really know what you're doing you always mm -hmm. have a bit of beginner's luck and then you also have the spirits that spite you <laughs> Yeah, sure. and, um, and I think um, some bad things happened. People got scared uh, very quickly. No one wanted to. And I mean, we had this coven for, I don't know, maybe two, three years. It wasn't meeting every Sabbath, but practicing enough. Like, you know, it was, it was something that we, we did really enjoy and it was, it was fun. It was, it seemed naughty. We always hid um, to do what we were doing. And, you know, we, each got scared enough that we decided maybe it's better. We just leave, leave this for a while. And you were 14, 15 at that time point then, or I don't know, maybe 13, because then when I was 15, it started again. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe, no, it must've been, I think maybe the first time, the first time was definitely while I was at primary school. And I think you leave primary school when you're 12. So it was maybe 10, 11, 12. And then the next one started must've been around 14, 15. Mm -hmm. um, it was already over by 16. Uh, same thing. Now a new group of people, more knowledge comes to the table and uh, the cycle begins again. Did you go deeper into it this time? The second, second round? Well, this, we were older. So now we learned, we had better names. We, you know, we had Gerald Gardner. We were learning about Alistair Crowley. We were playing with the tarot. Um, okay. You were already in, in the, in the heavier stuff, so to speak. Yeah. We, yeah. we didn't, we didn't have to, um, you know, we weren't scared to pick our fingers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, no, it was, it was really, um, 
it was really interesting. It's interesting to look back on my life and see how this has been cyclic. And, um, and then when I moved to Paris, it was very important to me, um, to find a new group of people. Right. And how do you do that? You know? Absolutely. Well, how old were you when you moved to Paris? So I moved to Paris when I was 20. Mm -hmm. And so now for, for information, I'm 35. Mm -hmm. um, so that took a while because I mean, firstly, I was still trying to figure out the language. And then I was like, how, where, where do witches go? You know, where do they hang out? <laughs> and how do you look for them? I, I was looking on forums, you know, I was, I was still kind of new to the internet because I did grow up in a household where we, we didn't have a computer, um, which I think maybe is weird for, for someone. I, I mean, when I arrived in France, I didn't even have an email address. Hmm. So, um, yeah. And I, I eventually found a group. Well, I found someone through Facebook, uh, who was selling things on Etsy And, uh, I went, I saw that she was going to this concert because music seems to, you know, always be It's an important part of your life, <laughs> yeah, okay. important part of life, my life. And I've noticed a lot of, um, I think you actually did say this on a podcast. A lot of people who are into the cult seem to also have an affinity with music. Oh, absolutely. Definitely. And, um, so I went to this concert that I'd seen, she clicked on the event that she was going to too. And one thing led to another. And, uh, we, we had a group going for, for a couple of years and, um, yeah, that was the last one. And then I decided solitary was better. <laughs> okay. And now you are still active, I guess. Yes. Well, actually, I had some, a series of traumatic events that happened in 2019 okay. and I decided that it was time to take a step back and also know that I will be back again. And it seems to be the kind of the, the story of my life. You know, I, you, once you, once you've opened that box, you can never really leave it. True. And so I put it aside and then I go back. And then I put it aside. And each time I acquire more knowledge, self-knowledge, it's, it's like really spot the spiral somehow that, that, yeah. that winds up upside. Yeah. And so, so may we say somehow I, in one of the phrases you said earlier on, I would say that you are also one of those who, who believe in that mind goes over matter, right? And mind creates matter, so to speak. Completely. <laughs> okay, good. Got you. Got you. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm completely with you. I wouldn't do that podcast if I weren't of that opinion. Um, now, now, but let's go a little bit into your work and your world of an artist. Um, when in your girl period, so to speak, would art and also seeing art, making art, wanting to make art, I don't know how it happened with you. When would that start to become an issue? So it's actually very interesting because I never wanted to, I wasn't really interested in, in art. Um, I grew up in a family where we, we didn't go to museums. We, you know, that wasn't something that my parents thought of doing. Mm. Um, so, but I was, when I was in high school, I had a group of friends and the one, the one woman, her father was a collector. The other one drew really well. So it was kind of an obvious 
thing that she would become an artist and, and they were all really into art. So I decided that, um, art was a subject that was kind of like, uh, just pretty easy. So I could take it as an extra subject, like a non-serious thing while I did my maths and science. So it's kind of like a break. Um, and in the, the curriculum that we had, you would, you would take six subjects. And if you took a seventh at the time, cause now people take like nine and they're all super brainiacs. Mm-hmm. Sure. After. <laughs> <laughs> if you took seven, it was because, you know, you, you had a specific goal in mind and I was like, okay, well, mm-hmm. I, I need a, a subject that will be a bit of a break from, from everything else I'm doing. And that way I can be with my friends. And so when it came the time to our final year diploma, um, I didn't have time to study for the art. Um, so I just didn't, uh, I had more serious things and anyway, it was this extra subject. It didn't really matter. Um, and then I got hundred percent on this paper, this end of year paper. And I actually also, um, I got a, a, a scholarship or like a bursary to this university. And I was like, this is so strange. Um, maybe there's something there. Maybe I should look deeper into art. What is art? You know, and it actually was just simply because while I was in those classes drawing away, I was really listening and taking that stuff in. And it was just such, I just love the, the freedom that, that art held, you know, this power and this freedom and anything you could do anything and call it art if you could justify it. And I really, I really like that concept. And so, uh, then I, I decide, okay, well, uh, I'm going to run an art institution. So okay. <laughs> you're, you're very much into creating institutions. You created at 11, your own coven. And <laughs> first thought about being an artist is creating your arts institution. I find that very interesting. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to be an artist. That's why, because I had to, I wanted to now be in the arts because I was, I'm, I've always, my whole life been a very big believer in following signs and just right. trusting signs. Right. Um, and so this sign of there's something there with the art, you have to follow that. It was kind of like this epiphany and it was very weird because my whole life, um, I'd wanted to be a pilot and that from the age of six, actually, when I lost my dad to 18, it never wavered, always wanted to be a pilot. I didn't really understand why. And then out of nowhere, I do this exam, end of year studies. Um, and I say to my parents, well, actually, you know what, I'm, I'm going to study art. And they were not impressed. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, what are you going to live off? Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, this is, this is a really, it's a sad part, but I do, I do find it important to share the story because it's mm. very, um, symptomatic of our society. My, my stepfather, um, looked at me and I saw he was, he was very, he was very upset and he was looking for his words. He was looking for the correct words to show me that he supported me no matter what. And he had this way about him where he would put his head in his hands. He shook, he shook his head. He looked up, pulled himself together and he said, it doesn't matter because you're a woman and you'll get married. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Nothing to add to that. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And I mean, it was meant with all the best intentions in the world, but of course. Yeah. 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 That was the, that was the opinion many people had and unfortunately still have. Uh, Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. And I mean, as I also didn't think art was a very serious thing, I said to him, don't worry, I'm I'm not going to be an artist. I'm going to run an institution. (laughs) So that was a safeguard somehow. Yeah, Yeah. 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 And, 
did you at that point already consciously or maybe not consciously feel a link between those experiences you'd made in the occult and the work of an artist maybe not even you yourself working as an artist but the work of an artist as such being linked to, to those same to that same spirit well i mean if i think back the artists that i was the artists that i was looking at the artists that inspired me they seemed like priests and priestesses, you know, and, and the art that I appreciated seemed more like a spiritual experience. Can so you give an example? Well, I mean, Marina Abramovich, she's quite a huge example. Yeah, of course, yeah. um, I actually attended a talk of hers when I was 18 and, and that was just, that was transformative, you know, mm -hmm. just to. Just for those of you listeners who don't know who Marina Abramovich is, I will put the link on the website of her page and so people can look it up. I think it's important to understand what you're saying here because that's a, a very good example. Yes. Mm. And then, I mean, even just something as simple and abstract as, as Rothko, you know, the, the way the color hovers on a surface and that he, there's this, this church, I think it's in, in Texas, this church that he built where it's just these spiritual paintings of his. It's just. Right. Yeah. 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 I think it's Texas. Yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So beautiful. I, I mean, I've never visited, but it's definitely on the bucket list. So, um, I think subconsciously that was there. And then I, so I started studying in South Africa. I did two years, um, in the art school there, Witz school of arts. And then I ended up in Paris and did five more years here. So still wanting to create arts institutions or, oh, or, or okay. mm -hmm. and then after seven years of studying in the very final year, I have this moment of panic. So now same thing seems very cyclic, all these events in my life. The last moment I think, oh, but maybe I want to make art. This is actually quite great. <laughs> and, um, and then now this is just the worst because it was true at the time. And it's especially true now when our students finish school, you already have a list of shows, you have people following you. Sometimes you even have a gallery that represents you. And I'd used that all those years studying art to experiment. I'd made films, I'd cooked things, I'd done performance, I'd started making installations. And looking back, I think that was what was so important because I didn't have this pressure to have a visual identity that I was experimenting with everything. And something, um, when I ran out of ideas, I would look to my personal life and what was I doing? I was practicing magic and, and there were very important things there that I wanted to push further. So I was using those maybe same kinds of setups or, or ingredients we could say mm -hmm. and experimenting in my art to practice with that. And so I think that's how, well, yeah, that's how it came about. So let's interrupt this really nice and interesting interview now. For that special experience we are going to make here, at least for those of you who are looking, watching, so to speak, on YouTube, no worries. This is not going to be a more and more YouTube-centered podcast. But of course, if you want to show something and you want, if you have a visual artist like that, um, then it's the only option that I have. If not, if you're not on YouTube, go on the website and see the little video there and you get the link also where you can watch it on YouTube directly. So 
no worries, you're not going to miss out if you're not on YouTube now. Okay, I have to say also something about the music that is being played during those seven and a half minutes um, of uh, presentation of those pictures. Um, because the music is also very special because it has been written for an exhibit um, by a friend artist of Bianca Bondi's who wrote that music as background music for her installations. And so you get a real authentic view here today on um, those works. It's not only Bianca's work, it's also the music that we have got with it, which is the exact, well, fit, so to say. It is a kind of soundtrack for the exhibit, Still Waters, where some of the, well, one of the pictures only actually, but still uh, they have been, they have been made especially for that. And the musician that uh, has written the music, she is Jennifer Ellis Hutt. She is um, from Baltimore, Maryland, but she also lives in France. And she's an actress and composer and musician. And she has done that very interesting music. You'll find also her link and more details about her on the website in the show notes. So. You get a full artistic experience now and now lean back. And if you are not on YouTube, just enjoy this um, music for, for, the, the, for that um, exhibit, for that installation exhibit. Just lean back and listen to that soundtrack and, um, well, search it on the internet with Jennifer Hutt um, if you want to get the full thing, which is about an hour of music, but now it's only about seven and a half minutes. Enjoy.
So I hope you liked and enjoyed that special treat for you with the music, soundtrack music by Jen Hutt, Jennifer Hutt from Baltimore to the pictures that you could see on the YouTube version, the pictures that were showing uh, views on the installations on the works of uh, our guest Bianca Bondi. I'm coming back because I want also to announce what happens after the interview. We're going to write back into the second part, of course, in a moment. Um, and after that, a uh, third piece of music, as always. And this time it'll be some kind of hard rock, which is also the music that Bianca told me she likes. And we have a piece uh, by the band, by the South uh, Californian uh, four-piece hard rock band Rockus. Uh, I hope I pronounced that correctly because I'm not I'm not sure about that Rockus. And it is called Sentinel Hill from their uh from their recording called Apparitions. Um so Sentinel Hill by Rockus from Southern California will be finishing after the interview. And of course I'll come back after the last piece of music and tell you what's happening next week. Right, so now let's go back to Paris and speak again and further, and I'll tell you there's much more to come with Bianca Bondi. So that that's really fascinating now because um, now you, you we're getting to the to the bottom of the matter. Now I think maybe I have to say two things to our audience. First, um, here again, please correct me if I'm saying something uh, that you wouldn't feel to be correct. Um, you would call yourself an installation artist. Is that is that right? Um, I, no, I would call myself a, a multidisciplinary artist, but my okay. speciality is definitely making installations. Okay, so now you guys look up what installations are because maybe some of you don't do that, but you have to do that that work yourself. And the other thing, uh, I just read. I, I'm not inventing this, but I'm just reading the, the headline of uh, uh, a U.S. paper that recently titled "Artist Bianca Bondi is Breaking Through." So we are speaking here to somebody who is really uh, making her way up the sometimes difficult ladder in the arts world at the moment. And um, uh, that is also why I was so fascinated to have her speak about her magical experience and backgrounds and what you just said now that um, about that link between magic and your, your, I'd almost call this a practice, the art, right? In that context, um, yeah. um, fascinated <laughs> me. So now back to you. Um, Tell us more about that. How, how, how does that feel? How does that work? So I think something that I, I need to elaborate on is this idea about an installation, because classically, mm -hmm. one would say that an installation artwork is um, a specific piece in a specific space for a set duration in time. Right. And now what I like to do is not just show a work and take the space into account, but take into account what has happened in there throughout history, what could happen in the future. I like to do research and see what kind of aura or presence or history is still imminent in that, like emanating in that space. And um, in some first installations, I would hide libations in my works just to kind of thank the gods of that site. Um, and, you know, it, it, it became complicated because when you start out, you know, there's no one really around. It's you that sets up your work. But as you become more and more experienced, 
um, there you're in museums, there's cameras, uh, there are installation, <laughs> there, there are, mm-hmm. uh, I don't, I'm losing my English, but there are people who <laughs> install the works for you and there's always people around. So you can't go and, you know, uh, yeah. do, do. I, I can tell you a funny story just briefly. Um, my very first large scale salt installation in a museum in Poland, um, I had this idea that I needed to put urine in it. And so I went and I directly urinated in this work um, and it oxidized the copper. And that was kind of the birth of this whole series of, of works going forward. And, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, so that was definitely on camera. I don't know if people looked, I don't know. If they- <laughs> <laughs> Back in 2014, it was years ago. Well, you were, you were using your experience from the Gardner, from the Gardner Gardnerian times, right? Of course. I'm definitely yes. an avid gar- Gardner fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, but uh, so, so when you do the, the, I mean, even less, less obvious things, but as you talked about hiding libations in the artwork or, or doing things to it that maybe might look weird to people who are not informed by what you're doing here, um, how 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 do people react to it do they see it as such or do they see it as an extravagancy or what what do they what do they feel about it um well in the beginning i wasn't telling anyone that my work was linked very linked to um or inspired by any sort of occult practice and very early on um Well, it's, I don't know if coincidence doesn't exist, but a series of circumstances led me to a talk by the artist Kendall Gears at the Maison Rouge. And um, I'm not sure if you, do you know the work of Kendall Gears? Vaguely, yes. Okay. So this was a very important moment because he gives his talk and I'd always been a fan of his stuff. And then through the talk, he starts speaking about ritual magic. And all of a sudden the signs start accumulating and you realize that he he's, he's practicing magic right in the open through his works. And then it becomes so obvious and, and he's just such an eloquent speaker. And then at some point he, he mentions um, having invited Marina Abramovich and Jeff Koons to his old school. Um, And then I realized that that talk that I'd been to was thanks to him. So after his speech, I went to see him and I thanked him And just being such a lovely human and generous person, he said, oh, and are you an artist? Do you have any shows? And then I just wanted to die on the spot because I literally just finished school. I had only just decided that I wanted to be an artist, but I actually happened to have my very first show. Just so funny. And he said, I'm going to come. And I was like, don't go. Uh, uh, wow. <laughs> and he came to the show and he was really lovely. And he said to me, but you're you're making magic too. And I said, no, I'm not. And he said, why, why hide it? Why are you pretending? What do you, and his famous words, what are you scared of? Mm-hmm. And uh, very quickly we developed a friendship and he became a very important mentor for me. And through his guidance, I, I learned to, to kind of uh, let go and accept that this is, this was an important way for me to make my art. Let, 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 let me let me interrupt you for one for one question here. Mm-hmm. He said, "What are you scared of?" Well, what were you scared of? So I think I was scared of being seen as this weird goth kid mm-hmm. <laughs> because I was always wearing black. Um, I I don't know. I just I, I preferred my own company. Uh, I was hanging around musicians, not with 
people who were in my art school. Um, so I thought if I was the girl wearing black making art that's involved in, has to do with magic, um, people aren't going to take it seriously. So I can do that, but not, not make it obvious. And I also thought it was so much more precious to have that secret, you know, and anyone who, who knew could see it, but it wasn't for the general public. I, I quite like that. Do you uh, think that, uh, that the artwork, uh, even if people didn't know that you, that you were using those practices to, to create it, could, I uh, didn't practice themselves. So we're not at all involved in that scene, so to speak, that they still could feel the special power that was in it because you put magic in it. I mean, that's what I like to think. That's, mm. that's the basis I work on. When I create an artwork now, I, I always talk about the importance of having work that's multifaceted, that's multilayered, that the artist has their intention, but the work is so much more than that. And this also links to um, why I choose to use unstable materials, mm. because I really like this idea that you have control until a certain point, but then the materials themselves take over and they do their own thing. Um, maybe later I'll, I'll explain some, some of my work so the audience can better, better understand. Yes, um, absolutely. Yes, you should do that because, and, um, in the, in the break that we took in this show, we also showed a few images on the YouTube version of this show. So if you are on YouTube, you should really go and have a look at that. Otherwise on the website, you'll see more pictures, but yes, I think now is the moment that you, that you'll explain a bit more about your techniques and what, what's important in your work to you and why the magic can play that role. Yes. So, um, very early on, I discovered, um, salt and, um, salt is an artistic material and, and an alchemical it, element. Of course. <laughs> and, um, so this love affair of salt began, um, because I said, what is the first gesture you do when you make magic, you close your circle know you or you 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 know you you protect you cleanse you and then it became this experiment well what if the first gesture you do when you practice art is you do the same thing and then slowly slowly it just went on from there and and uh it just made so much sense because you know i i mean i don't even know where to start so it just has it's just so humble that it's on every table and yet it's so powerful mm. and, um, it's scientific, but it's also metaphysic. Um, and, uh, what I really loved is what I would use is mostly salt water. So you have the salt and the water and, um, I don't know. I mean, I don't really know where, where to start. I, <laughs> <laughs> I can't help you there. You have yeah, to do that. Maybe, maybe it's an example. Yes. So, uh, what I like to do is, as I'd mentioned before, investigate the space where I'm going to show. And then, um, oh, well, let me give you a concrete example. The Biennial of Lyon in 2019 Uh, it was held in this um, disaffected factory building. So this factory had um, had closed down, but the 
the foreclosure took a couple of years. It was really drawn out. It was extremely painful. Um, it had been around for so long that generations had worked there. Uh, children had been there during their summer holidays. It was kind of like a rite of passage. And when it closed down, um, it was it was a huge loss for for the city. Uh, basically, that whole that whole area had been, you know involved in it and somehow, and also because it had been a factory, um, they were doing like, uh, um, washing machines and electric electronics, that sort of thing. Um, the ground actually was contaminated for about seven kilometers around it. So the factory closes down. Uh, the city has this idea a couple of years later to, um, invite artists and the biennial to take place there. And, um, it would be kind of a, a way of, you know, slowly, slowly bringing people back, uh, kind of healing and everything. So when I was invited to participate in the show, um, I looked at photos, I investigated, I read the stories. It was extremely heartbreaking. And then I asked for a toxicity report. And that's when I discovered the, the contamination. So, um, that was kind of my link. What does salt do? It's hygroscopic. So it absorbs and retains any moisture, but it also, um, absorbs toxins and transforms them. So this just started making sense. Um, I decided that I was going to take over this old, um, I don't know what, if you could call it like a mess hole, like where people would have, uh, just downtime, relax, eat or whatever and uh, put in a kitchen and I wanted the most beautiful kitchen you could imagine. So we'd found uh, a company and they, they offered to give me their model kitchen, which was just every drawer had lights. It was just beautiful. Every utensil was like this designer utensil. And I put this, I built, well, I had this uh, sort of river built in an L form and it was this like salt water like pond and the kitchen was placed on it so that you could walk around it. Um, so it was as if it had been there, but it was completely out of space, out of place. Mm -hmm. And the idea was, um, to show that everything is, you know, that in science, we always say that nothing is lost. Everything is transformed. Um, so it was this idea that even though this factory has closed down, all this stuff has happened, um, the memory that people have of working there and what that meant to all the families that had this beautiful, this, these beautiful products that they made, that's forever. That never dies. You can't have like things that are intangible can't disappear. So also I thought, you know, it's so important to show something like a kitchen, which is something that everyone can relate to. You know, we all have memories around that. And just to show this family home, this kitchen, that's like the most beautiful thing possible. But then I put it on salt. So it was literally the salt water pond and it was literally absorbing everything from that air. Like, um, you know, I want to say the bad juju too. Yeah. <laughs> and over the period of the three, four months that the show was up, um, you had the beginning of the, of the kitchen, which was just kind of white salt everywhere and salt water. And by the end of it, you had like, it looked like ice and there was like, these pots that were supposed to be in uh, unoxidizable that were like, like spewing and spitting and everything was like yeah. green and red and, and moldy. And, and yeah, 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 it completely yeah, yeah. transformed. And, and uh, for me, what was so beautiful was that the people that had worked there that had come back, they contacted me 
Um, one guy in particular, he had been a kid whose both his parents were immigrants who'd worked there. He'd spent all his school holidays there. And he said to me, my parents have never dared. My mom has never dared to put her foot back there. My dad died of cancer shortly after. And I went back and that meant so much because we remember that building and what you did resonated so much. And for me, that's what's, that's, what's beautiful about making art that's open. You know, I knew why I did that, but um, it was so much beyond that. And actually for the anecdote, when I was installing that work, my stepfather had just died. So I thought, what am I going to do? Cancel, cancel my participation. No. So I went there and I closed the, cause it was in a big open space factory, but my piece was the only thing that was in a sort of like a separate mess hall room. I closed that door. I didn't want any assistance. I didn't want anyone to help me. And I spent two weeks just crying and putting that piece together. And it was, it was my, it was my healing space. And, yeah. and so it meant so much that it, it could resonate. That's great. Um, does the salt or what you do, whatever it is, does that absorb the aura of things and therefore becomes um, linked to time and space or, or is it some, would you, would you call it the aura? Or would you call it something else? What's happening there? I mean, I, I do often speak about it as aura, but I mm. think, I mean, I like to imagine in, in a few ways. Firstly, as I said, there's this whole thing of control. So as the artist, I set up the scene and I have an idea of what's going to happen. But then there, because these are all chemicals reacting, metals and chemicals all reacting together, um, they have their own life. And it's going to depend on what is the temperature in the room? What is the humidity? What are the external factors? Um, what are the toxins that are being absorbed by the salt? And that's really so exciting. So there is this aura linked to the space, linked to the objects, one can say. But I think it's also really exciting because these objects by the use of salt, they're kind of, I like to imagine them being rubbed raw. So they're kind of more open to vibrations, to energy. It's, it, I don't know, it's a, it's a way of working. Um, it's quite trendy at the moment to say that it's uh, about seeing things from a non-human perspective, but that really is what it is. Yeah. Uh, in an article uh, about you, uh, I read the phrase and I think that fits good here. Um, Bianca Bondi's art practice is a testbed of scientific research, spiritual influences and artistic expression. So are you a hermeticist? Well, I, I mean, yes, by default, because the, the, <laughs> yeah, and, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> don't be shy. You know, you know what's funny? So the the recent solo show I just had, everyone ex was expecting a transformation, hmm. and um, so this was this this exhibition where um, basically it's a series of five different rooms, and I linked each room to to a basic need to cleanse, to protect, to sleep, and also a material experience. And um, when the show was announced, when people were speaking about it, they're like, oh, she's going to transform things, things are going to oxidize. And I knew that. But I think it's so important as an artist not to repeat yourself. And there was going to be a transformation, but that was the transformation, you know, it was the chemical search for gold. It was interior. It wasn't, you know, and I made this like, it was a, it was a temple. It was designed like a temple. You could clearly see the temple like structures. There were altars. There were, you know, uh, there was incense, the black virgin for oh, cleansing right. home. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and it was beautiful because uh, I, 
from that, I got messages from people saying it was so good to see all this Wiccan symbology. Um, and, you know, the art world was like, oh, it didn't, things didn't change that much. And the whole time that change was, you know, it was your experience in that space and how it makes you, you know, the change in you. It was subtle. Right. Right. Oh, you very, very, very nicely said. Um, I have to ask you that now, but um, you don't have to reply, of course, if you don't want. But wh what what is your practice today? The solitary practice. How would you how would you call it? Or maybe you want even to give examples or whatever. But what what does it look like? How do, what does it feel like? So funnily enough, my my practice at the moment well, for the past two years, well, since these events of 2019 yeah. has been mostly focused on scrying and re re getting into astral projection. Okay. Um, that's something that I, that I have found more, more exciting. I think I'm, maybe I'm, I'm in a sort of limbo waiting for the next step. There's right. three moments where, um, so I just moved and I finally have a garden and, and I said, you know, what? it's time to have a covering again, because now we can be outside. Um, you know, this is something that was get work with other people. You mean also? Yes. Yes. And I, mm -hmm. uh, so, so Kendall has been saying for ages, come to Brussels. The scene is huge. You know, let's, let's do stuff. And, uh, I, I mentioned while we were speaking just personally, I, I mean, now I know these amazing people. Why are we not getting together? I guess we're all very busy, you know, because we're all speaking about this stuff, but we're not practicing together. Uh, um, I actually have a friend, uh, uh, Michael Michael West, who just released a book called Sex Magic. Mm -hmm. um, I can actually send you some links to this stuff. And and uh, it's funny because when when I was younger, I knew him as the, the barman at this at the local Irish pub. <laughs> it turns out that he was, he was into he was into magic all along, you know, and um, and then he opened this wonderful bar um, and uh, just started assuming full on that that the cult was this thing, and that was just great. And then I recently was invited to participate in a show called uh, L'Homme Gris, the mm -hmm. the Gray Man which was uh, about Satan. And I thought that was really exciting to, uh, I mean, it was exciting to test my work in a different context. Firstly, in a context where the theme is clearly, you know, of a darker nature. And also because I, I make works that are very clearly about, about healing, about, you know, just uh, looking inside oneself and the collective unconscious, that sort of thing. And it was so nice to, to make works that were like bones and crystals and, you know, like things that people are scared of and you're like, but is it scary? You know, look at these things and why? And, and yeah. so, so the curator, um, he did his doctorate on Satan and, uh, his girlfriend, um, once I met them, I was like, how did I not see the signs in your work all along too? And, and so that, that was really great. That's That's interesting. In another article I read, and I personally must say from what I see from, of course, I only see the images. I have never seen an installation of yours life, unfortunately, but in the, in the images, I don't see that part at all. I wonder what you say, but that, uh, that, are, that, um, uh, journalist, he or she, I don't know who it was wrote, um, it's in French. So I have to kind of try to translate that qu quickly that you're using ancestral mythology and speculative fiction and your art could be qualified as, uh, 
um, sorcellerie du Cthulhu Sen. So um, the, the sorcery of the Cthulhu um, realm. Yes. Uh, um, would you do you see that in your art? No, you know what? This is um, this is uh, because the phrase was was picked up by Donna Haraway, and and it's related ah, okay. to eco feminists and. Okay. 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 So get the context then. Yeah, it's yeah. more in that context there, and right. it's it's funny to be associated with this wave. I mean, what is wicked? It's it's polarity of the genders and. Mm you know, respecting okay. nature. So yes, it is eco-feminism, but it's not. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's yeah, very yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, it, it somehow can't be because uh, 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 hermeticism can't be either because it's equal. That's, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, while we are at that, I have I have three questions for you here, but they go in a row. I hope uh, I hope that they are okay for you. Um, first, it's easy. Is art magic? Is art magic, uh, or is it just linked to magic, or is it really magic itself? Does it change reality? Does art itself change reality? It can. It definitely can. I think it, it. that's what's so great about it. It has the power to be magic, but it depends on the intentions of the artist, just as it, 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 it depends on the intentions of the magician. Yeah, yeah. Now, the next one in that row is, is art activism? Oh, yes, not at all. This was actually uh, a very important topic of mine um, when I when I wrote my my thesis uh, upon graduating, because I asked myself the question, you know, it's really hard to make art and take art seriously when, you know, part of you wants to just be out there saving the whales. And then I was looking into artists that I admire and seeing how they dealt with that, how, and most of them were political artists and very active artists. And it was really refreshing to hear them say, I'm not an activist, I'm an artist, because if I was an activist, I wouldn't have time to make art. I mean, they're definitely, uh, I think it's, it's so important. And I've always felt this way that art has um, a socially engaged part to it, you know, but um, you, you're not an activist. You're an artist. You, at the end of the day, um, you know it's that that age old um, problem. Are you when you see something bad happening, do you take the photo or do you help the person? No. When yeah. you're an artist, you're yeah. taking the photo. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, which brings me to the third question, which I kind of know the answer, but I would like to hear it from you. Um, <laughs> uh, can activism, no, can magic, sorry, can magic be activism? Yes. Yes. In what way? Well, I mean, I, I think it works on a, I mean, it works on a, a, a different plane. So these, these rules don't apply, you know, mm -hmm. uh, it's you, you have your intentions and I think, I mean, it's, it's the rule of three. 
I'm such a good witch, huh? <laughs> ah, you're perfect. You're perfect. <laughs> <laughs> such a goody, a goody, goody. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what's your, I'm going, pushing it even further. What's your definition of magic? I know there are 20,000 on the internet that you can find a definition of magic and you get the whole list and all are different by one syllable only. But what, what's your personal definition of magic for you? You, Bianca Bondi, what's Bianca Bondi's magic? What is it? Oh, this is such a tough question. I know. Oh, um, well, I think it's just being sensitive to the electricity in the air, to trusting what you don't see, but you feel to trusting those, those sneaky suspicions. I, I always love to say that the universe, whatever, for lack of a better word, it sends you signs. And when you don't hear them, they get louder. And it's just magic is being sensitive to those signs and connecting with them and, and setting your intentions. Mm -hmm. I find that's a very, very nice definition. In fact, at the time you said when you had your first, uh, your first show, you said you were scared of talking about magic. And then we were talking about what you were scared of. Uh, obviously today you are no longer scared of uh, talking about this. So what has changed uh, in you that you are no longer scared to talk about it and what was the consequence of no longer being scared of talking about it oh that's funny so i think well it was definitely meeting kendall seeing how it just learning from a successful artist how important it is to to have your personal fingerprint to you you can't just you can't just make art that anyone else could make. You have to really dig into who you are and your personal experiences to make something that, that touches other people. You know, you have to speak from, from your real experiences and, and what are your passions? And when you speak about, when you make art that comes from your passions, it resonates. So, um, that was, that was the turning point to start getting over my fear And the consequence, well, it's really funny because uh, witchcraft is really trendy these days. So <laughs> no one really gets what I'm saying. <laughs> they're, they're, you know, it's really, it's very much linked now to, to ecology and, and to, uh, you know, gender equality. Um, mm -hmm. So especially in France, I mean, there's a lot of important books that have finally been translated, you know, I think of, of Starhawk. And so uh, a lot of a very big younger population are really connecting and, and finding, finding sense in that, you know, and also how witchcraft was quite active. It was a form of activism. And so when I, when I use that word now related to my practice, everyone's like, Oh yeah, ecology, feminism. <laughs> and, um, and it's, it's less, uh, Elephus Levi, Elephus <laughs> Yeah, Elephus Levi, he was a French figure, of course. As well. yeah. yeah, well, that, that's interesting. But you had your Crowley times too, you said that, right? You know, I've never really been a fan. No. I think, um, yeah, I'm, no. Are there parts of magic or experiences or, or paths that you... Well, you're so young, of course there must be, but uh, make, could you name paths that you would like to um, test if they work for yourself, uh, see if they were the thing that could bring you into your next cycle? Uh, maybe are there specific things in magic, in the occult that you would be keen to, to work with? 
Um, I think if I'm completely honest, it would be for wants to be in a coven that I didn't initiate. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, that's an interesting point. (laughs) What sign, what zodiacal sign are you? Virgo, but you can't ask what anything else about my chart because my mom gave me three different times for my birth date. Okay, so maybe yeah. you're still maybe you're still a Leo. Maybe that's that's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, yeah, no. I think it, it would just be really great to get back into a more regular practice, but through people who who are serious and who are much more um, rehearsed or practiced in. The branches of magic that I'm into. So uh, now I know where to find them. It's just okay. find, finding the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that, that's what happens then. That's the next point. Exactly. That, that's always the problem. Um, so now we, you see, you, you were worried. We were worried. How do we fill an hour talking about art and magic? It was very easy. We could go on for ages. I, I have the impression, uh, but we are well, coming to the end of, the, of this interview already, Bianca, um, I, I'd like to ask you as a kind of final question or final word even, um, if there are young visual artists out there who are a bit in a similar situation uh, that you, meaning um, they have those sensitivities to, to the other world, let's put it that way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and also might have those fears or maybe are scared to talk about it because of, for the same reasons, I think the reasons that you gave were quite, were quite obvious. Um, What would be your advice to them? Um, How they should handle that and how they should find their path? Well, um, it's complicated because on one hand, I want to say my instinct would be read, 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 and then practice on your own. And then on the other hand, I want to say, be very aware of what you're getting into because there's no going back. Is, no. is that contradictory? Uh, it, it is because, you know, once you start practicing, you open those doors and those doors don't close. You know, you, you can't, sure. you know, once you become a believer, you don't, you, you can't not believe anymore. It's, what it's is a believer? <laughs> that uh, that we're not alone that there are energies and there's something very very great Mm. uh, electricity in the air and and magic is very real and you can definitely guide it but be very very careful what you ask for because you know what you're asking for but you don't know what you have to give yeah and be precise in what you're asking for yes and (laughs) test the phrase you're using Mm. yeah yeah Definitely. I mean, even that you, you can be very precise in what you want, but you don't know what you have to give in return. What that's the other thing. Yes, exactly. And, um, and that's, that's for sure because, um, well, I mean, you, you know, this too, I can say with, with all honesty, everything I've asked for, I've now gotten, but I've given too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at the same time, I wouldn't go back. But that's also why I've taken this little break, <laughs> sabbatical, <laughs> and I know I'll be back there too. Yeah. 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 I think that's a great final word, isn't it? <laughs> Thank you, Bianca. Thank you for this really pleasant uh, 65 minutes in your, in your company. I wish you 
good luck for all your all your projects and be they magical be they artistic or combined whatever and um thanks for your time and um um carry on like that thank you so much rudolf i will i will catch you next week i'll be listening every week <laughs> <laughs> thank you that's great thank you now goodbye for now goodbye bye bye
Californian band Rockwest, who also were contacting me one day. That's already quite some time back here. Um, and who are a four-piece hard rock band, as you could hear. And they played their piece, Sentinel Hill. Right, this is the end of our interview. This is the end of our show. And um, I'm happy that you were here with me today. I was especially happy to have Bianca Bondi with us here today. I think it was a very, very special show. And uh, she had lots of interesting things to say. It was a bit different, maybe, from the things that you are used to talking to authors and to uh, people you know principally as magicians or people who have worked in the occult uh, a lot. Um, so we took somebody who is uh, going to be a very important artist, already is an important artist, and spoke to her about her approach to magic, which influences her work a lot. So I do hope you enjoyed. I certainly did. Well, next week we have another guest here, figure it. And it will be September 19th. And I will have here Australian magician, artist as well. And well, he's all kinds of things. Oriel de Fenestrate. Some of you who have been to O-Culture in Berlin, for example, do you might know him. He's often here, present in Europe. Um, well, I'll tell you, well, it'll give me an interesting talk. Um, and... We will enjoy that, I am sure. So, uh, see you and hear you mostly. Hear you next week again, I do hope. Um, have a good week. Stay safe and healthy. I hope in your country it's not too bad at the moment. It's in Europe over here, in many places, it's, it's harder again. And, um, well, we all do hope it's not going to be too bad. Um, so... Stay safe and healthy, all of you, and for time being, I can only say, take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.